0: Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast, this is your host Paul and this is episode 168. Our first story this week comes from the todayifoundout.com website and it's written by Carl Smallwood. And it's the answer to one of those questions that you may have wondered about during your lifetime. Did people ever really put crocodiles in moats? A common image in pop culture is that of a castle moat filled to the brim with water and hungry crocodiles. So did anyone ever actually do this? The short answer is that it doesn't appear so. That said, while there is no known documented instance of crocodiles intentionally being put into moats, we do know of at least one castle that had, and has in fact, a moat full of bears. But before we get to that and why crocodiles in moats are probably not the best idea in the world, or at least not a very efficient use of resources if your concern was really the defence of a fortress, we should address the fact that the common image most people have in their heads of a moat isn't exactly representative of what historical moats usually look like. To begin with, moats have been around seemingly as long as humans have had a need of protecting a structure or area with documented instances of them appearing everywhere from ancient Egypt to slightly more modern times around certain Native American settlements. And of course there are countless examples of moats being used throughout European history. In many cases however these moats were little more than empty pits dug around a particular piece of land or property, water-filled moats were something of a rarity. You see, unless a natural source of water was around, maintaining an artificial moat filled with water required a lot of resources to avoid the whole thing just turning into a stinking cesspool of algae and biting bugs, as is wont to happen in standing water as with artificial ponds constructed on certain wealthy individuals' estates. These would have to be regularly drained and cleaned, then filled back up to keep things from becoming putrid. Of course, if one had a natural flowing water source nearby, some of these problems could be avoided. But in the end, it turns out a water-filled moat isn't actually that much more effective than an empty one at accomplishing the goal of protecting a fortress. As for putting crocodiles or alligators in them, introducing such animals to a region, beyond being quite expensive if not their native habitat, is also potentially dangerous if the animals got out. Again, all this while not really making the act of conquering a fortress that much more difficult, so little payoff for the extra cost of maintaining crocodiles. Unsurprisingly from this, outside of a legend we'll get to shortly, there doesn't appear to be any known documented cases of anyone intentionally putting crocodiles or alligators into their water-filled moats. It should also be mentioned here that while at first glance it would appear that the key purpose of a moat is to defend against soldiers attacking the walls, They were often actually constructed with the idea of stopping soldiers underground. You see, a technique favoured since ancient times for breaching cities, fortresses and fortified positions was to simply dig tunnels below any walls surrounding the position and then intentionally let them collapse, bringing part of the wall above that section tumbling down. Eventually, this was accomplished by use of explosives like gunpowder. But before this, a more simpler method was to cart a bunch of tinder into the tunnel at the appropriate point and set the whole thing ablaze. The idea here was, after all your diggers were out, to destroy the support beams used to keep the tunnel from collapsing while digging. If all went planned, both the tunnel and the wall above it Would then collapse. To get around this very effective form of breaching fortifications, moats would be dug as deeply as possible around the fortification, sometimes until diggers reached bedrock. If a natural source of water was around, surrounding the fortress with water was a potential additional benefit over the dry pit at stopping such tunnelling. Either way, beyond making tunnelling more difficult or practically impossible, Dry and wet moats, of course, helped dissuade above-ground attacks as well, thanks to moats being quite good at limiting an enemy's use of siege weaponry. In particular, devices such as battering rams were rendered almost entirely useless in the presence of a large moat. Though the later advent of weapons such as trebuchets made moats less effective overall, they still proved to be formidable barriers capable of kneecapping a direct assault on a castle's walls. All this said, it wasn't as if proud moat owners didn't put anything in them. There are plenty of ways to beef up moat defences without the need for water or crocodiles. Pretty much anything that slows an enemy's advance works well, and better yet, anything that is so daunting it deters an attack at all. In fact, Archaeological surveys of moats have found evidence of things like stinging bushes having once grown throughout some moats. Whether these were intentionally planted on the part of the moat owners, or just a byproduct of having a patch of land they left unattended for years at a time, isn't entirely clear. But it doesn't seem too far fetched to think this may have been intentional in some cases. As you might imagine, wading through stinging or thorny plants while arrows and rocks and the like are raining down at you from above wasn't exactly tops on people's lists of things to do. As for moats that were filled with water, while filling them with crocodiles or alligators wasn't seemingly something anyone did, some savvy castle owners did fill them with fish, giving them a nice private fishery. As mentioned, artificial ponds built for this purpose were also sometimes a thing for the ultra-wealthy. Functioning both as a status symbol, given maintaining such was incredibly expensive, and a great source of food year-round. Moving back to the dry bed moats. When not just leaving them as a simple dug pit, or planting things meant to slow enemy troops... It does appear at least in some rare instances fortress owners would put dangerous animals in them, though seemingly, again, more as a status symbol than actually being particularly effective at deterring enemy troops. Most famously at Krumlov Castle in the Czech Republic, there exists something that is most aptly described as a bear moat, located between the castle's first and second courtyard. When exactly this practice started, and exactly why has been lost to history, with the earliest known documented reference to the bear moat going back to 1707. Whether designed to serve as a stark warning to potential intruders, a status symbol or both, the castle's grisliest residents were tended to by a designated bear keeper until around the early 19th century when the practice ceased. This changed again in 1857 when the castle's then resident noble, karl zu Schwarzenberg, acquired a pair of bears from nearby Transylvania, intent on reviving the tradition. From that moment onward, outside of a brief lapse in the late 19th century, the castle's moat has always contained at least one bear. Today the bears are most definitely completely for show, and each year bear-themed celebrations are held at Christmas, and on the bear's birthdays during which children bring the bear's presents. If bears aren't your thing, Wilhelm V, the Prince Regent of Bavaria in the late 16th century, supposedly kept both lions and a leopard in the moats of Trausnitz Castle where he lived. However, again, it appears that Prince Wilhelm kept the animals more for show and fun than he did for defence. Beyond dangerous creatures, His moat also contained pheasants and a rabbit run. Moving back to crocodiles being put in moats, the earliest reference to something like this, though seemingly just a legend, appears to be the legend of Cocodrillo di Castelnuovo. This story is recounted by the 19th and 20th century historian and politician Benedetto Croce in his Neapolitan stories and legends. In that castle, there was a moat under the level of the sea, dark, humid, where the prisoners, who they want to be more strictly castigate, were usually put. When all of a sudden, they started to notice with astonishment that from there, the prisoners disappeared. Did they escape? How? Put a tighter surveillance and a new guest inside there, one day they saw, unexpected, a terrifying scene from a hole hidden in the moat. A monster, a crocodile entering, and with its jaws it grasped for the legs of the prisoner and dragged him to the sea to eat him. Rather than kill the creature, the guards decided to make the fearsome creature an executor of justice, sending prisoners condemned to death to meet their end in its toothy maw exactly where the crocodile came from and when this supposedly happened depends on which version of the legend you consult. Though our favourite version suggests that Queen Joanna II smuggled it over to Naples from Egypt sometime in the 15th century, with the sole intention of feeding her many, many lovers to it. A consistent element in most versions of the legend is that the beast bit off more than it could chew when it tried to eat a leg of a giant horse, ultimately choking on it. Of course, this is generally thought to be nothing more than a legend, with no evidence that it actually occurred, or even exactly when. At least the story does show the idea of a crocodile in a moat isn't just something found in modern pop culture. And this website always has a couple of bonus facts. Moats are starting to make a bit of a comeback in modern times, such as used to protect certain embassies from car bombings. There's also a concrete moat around parts of the Catawba nuclear station that isn't bordered by a lake, again for the purposes of protecting against car bombings and the like. On the note of pokey plants being planted in moats, there are variations of a popular Scottish legend that have the thistle playing a key role in foiling the attack of an invading force. In one such version of the legend a nighttime raid on Slain's castle in modern-day Aberdeenshire was foiled when sneaking Norsemen stepped on the thistles and cried out in pain, alerting the guards that a surprise attack was imminent. It is sometimes further stated that this is how the most noble and most ancient order of the thistle of Scotland was established, and how the national flower of Scotland was chosen. Of course, there isn't any documented evidence that exists to support the various versions of this legend. And from our good friend of the podcast, themutineer.org. The remarkable life and times of Charles Herbert Lightoller. If you are at all familiar with the name Charles Lightoller, it is probably through his association with the RMS Titanic, which sank in the North Atlantic on her maiden voyage on the 15th of April 1912, with the loss of more than one and a half thousand lives, following a collision with an iceberg. However, the fact that he is remembered today solely as a crew member of the ill-fated liner does him a major disservice. Charles Herbert Lightoller was born on the 30th of March 1874 in Chorley, Lancashire, England, to Sarah and Fred Lightoller. Sadly, Sarah died soon after giving birth and Fred abandoned his young son, seeking a new life for himself in New Zealand. At the age of 13, Charles began a seafaring apprenticeship that would last four years, which unfortunately for the young mariner was certainly not plain sailing. On only his second voyage, the ship on which he was serving, the Holt Hill, was damaged in a storm and was forced to seek shelter at Rio de Janeiro, which just happened to be in the middle of a revolution and a smallpox epidemic at the time. Nevertheless, the repairs were made and the ship was able to continue on with its voyage. That was until the 13th of November, 1889, when another storm caused the ship to run aground on an uninhabited island in the Indian Ocean. The crew were eventually rescued and taken to Adelaide, Australia, where Lytola managed to join the crew of a clipper called the Duke of Abercorn, which was sailing for England. While serving as third mate on a windjammer called the Knight of St Michael, Charles found himself embroiled in another nautical nightmare when the cargo of coal caught fire. On this occasion, however, the young seaman distinguished himself by successfully extinguishing the blaze and so saving the ship. For his endeavours he was rewarded with a promotion to second mate. In 1895, at the age of 21, Lytola switched from sail to steam and joined the African Royal Mail Service, steaming up and down the West African coast. However, after three years, Charles contracted a severe bout of malaria, which almost cost him his life. Following his recovery, Lytola decided to pursue a different career path and in 1898 headed for the Yukon to prospect for gold in what became known as the Klondike Gold Rush. Unfortunately, he didn't strike it rich, and so headed instead for Alberta, Canada, where he worked for a time as a cowboy, before eventually working his passage home aboard a cattle boat, arriving back in England penniless in 1899. In January of 1900, Charles elected to resume his maritime career and joined the White Star Line as fourth officer on the SS Medic. It was whilst serving aboard the Medic and while moored in Sydney Harbour, Australia, that an incident occurred which suggested that Lightoller possessed a slightly eccentric sense of humour. Noting the concern of locals as to the potential outcome of the Boer War, that was at the time raging in far off South Africa, Charles decided to play a trick on the residents of Sydney. Just after midnight on Saturday, the 6th of October 1900, Lytoller and two shipmates took a rowing boat and rowed out to Fort Denison in the harbour. There they hoisted a boar flag and loaded a cannon with 14 pounds of blasting powder and a long fuse the idea being to fool the good citizens of the city into thinking they were being attacked by a Boer raiding party. At 1am the cannon went off, and the ensuing blast was so loud that windows were blown out, and startled residents leapt from their beds. When the Boer flag was spotted, panic ensued. Thanks to the long fuse, by the time of the explosion, Charles and his accomplices had made good their escape and the perpetrators of the stunt were never apprehended. Burdened by guilt over the incident, however, Lytola admitted his involvement to the line's marine superintendent once back in England. Fortunately, instead of disciplining him, the officer found the whole thing highly amusing and simply told him to get on with his duties. At the beginning of April 1912, Charles Lightoller was appointed to the position of second officer aboard the RMS Titanic, a commission that would seal his place in history. On the night of the 14th of April, Charles had already retired to bed when he felt a sudden vibrating jar run through the ship. Being told that they had struck an iceberg, Lightoller got dressed and made his way up onto the deck of the stricken vessel. His initial confidence that the ship would not sink soon evaporated, and so Charles immediately began the task of loading passengers into lifeboats. His actions in this regard have subsequently met with some criticism. He interpreted the order of women and children first to mean women and children only, meaning some lifeboats were launched with spare capacity remaining. Lightoller even refused to allow the millionaire businessman, John Jacob Astor, to accompany his wife into a lifeboat. Astor subsequently drowned. As it became clear the ship was about to go under, Lightoller and his fellow officers shook hands and said goodbye to one another. With nothing more to be done aboard the crippled liner, Charles dived off of the roof of the officer's quarters into the frigid waters of the North Atlantic. He somehow managed to avoid being dragged under by the colossal suction forces generated by the sinking Leviathan and was able to swim to an upturned lifeboat, which he clung to until rescued. Charles Lytoller thus became the most senior officer to survive the Titanic disaster. Having lived through such a traumatic ordeal, one might think that that would have signalled the end of Charles's life on the ocean waves. But not so. There were still more tales of daring do to come from our intrepid hero. During World War I, Lytoller enlisted in the Royal Navy and was given the command of a torpedo boat. He served with distinction, on one occasion even sinking a German submarine. By the end of hostilities, he had been decorated on two occasions and emerged with the rank of naval commander. After the war, Charles retired and bought his own boat named Sundowner, and together with his Australian wife Sylvia, spent many happy years cruising around northern Europe. Yes, that's right. Despite antagonising almost the entire population of Sydney, he actually married a girl from Sydney. I wonder if he ever confessed his guilt to his in-laws. Even in retirement, however, the world has not seen the last of Charles Leitola. In 1940, after the outbreak of World War II, the British Army, along with troops from France and Belgium, found themselves trapped on the beaches of Dunkirk, France, and with the German Army approaching from land on one side and the English Channel on the other. Desperate times call for desperate measures, and the owners of boats in the south of England were informed that their vessels were needed to rescue the troops stranded on the French beaches. The retired commander immediately sprang into action, determining to take the sundowner to France himself. And so it was that on the 27th of May 1940, 66-year-old Charles Lytoller, together with his son Roger, and a sea scout named Gerald Ashcroft set sail for Dunkirk. Despite being under aerial attack from German fighter aircraft, they managed to cram an astonishing 260 men on board the Sundowner, and all were successfully evacuated back to England. On watching the disembarkation, one astounded officer commented to Charles, My God, mate, where did you put them all? Charles Herbert Lightoller DSC and BAR, RD, died of heart failure on the 8th of December 1952 at the age of 78. His ashes were scattered at the Commonwealth Garden of Remembrance at Mortlake, Surrey, next to the River Thames. A life well lived, I think. The sad reality is that we will never be able to solve all crimes. Despite the best efforts of law enforcement, justice isn't always served. And closure forever eludes some victims' families. Sometimes no one may even realise a crime has been committed until it's far too late to do anything about it. History is filled with cases that would stump even Sherlock Holmes. Often this isn't because they were the works of criminal masterminds, but because there were almost no clues to go on. As of now, these ten murders remain mysteries, and the more time passes, the less likely they are ever to be solved. From the listverse.com Ten historical murder mysteries still waiting for an answer and this is written by Radu Alexander. Number 10. The skeleton in the cellar. The Lost Towns project is an ongoing archaeological enterprise to rediscover and excavate lost settlements from colonial Maryland. In 2003 researchers were examining a site called Levy Neck in Anne Arundel County when they discovered a skull in a 17th-century cellar that was used for trash. As the team kept excavating, they found the rest of the skeleton stuffed inside the shallow pit with enough force to displace a kneecap and curl the toes under. It became increasingly clear that the body was likely the victim of foul play. Eventually archaeologists became convinced that they had a colonial cold case on their hands and brought in forensic anthropologist Dr Doug Owsley to help. He identified the remains as belonging to a 16-year-old male of European descent. There were numerous signs suggesting he was in poor health, including compressed vertebrae from prolonged hard labor. Forensic specialists concluded that the teenager was most likely an indentured servant. Furthermore, his right wrist suffered perimortem fractures, as if the victim tried to block a heavy blow. This, along with the quick burial, suggested murder. Based on items surrounding the body, the boy was probably killed between 1665 and 1675. This was at a time when laws were passed to protect indentured servants from abuse. Archaeologists believe that the teenager was killed by his master who dumped the body in the trash pit to hide his crime. The identities of both killer and victim remain a mystery for now. Number 9. The Wrong Archaeologist In 1911, Michigan scholar Herbert Fletcher de became part of a team of US archaeologists who excavated the ancient Greek city of Cyrene in modern-day Libya. On the morning of March 11, the camp was awakened by shots and screams. The expedition's director, Richard Norton, was informed that Deku had been killed while on his way to the dig site on the Acropolis. Witnesses said that three Arabs concealed themselves behind a wall and waited for Deku to pass by, and shot him two times before making their escape on horseback. It was widely believed that the assassins didn't target Deku specifically, but wanted to kill a high-profile American and mistook Deku for the director. This was shortly before the outbreak of the Italo-Turkish War, where Libya became an Italian colony, and resentment against the West was high among certain groups. Richard Norton's statement concurred with this notion. He also unofficially endorsed certain hearsay, which was pervasive in the country at the time. The rumour was that the Arab assassins acted under Italian influence. Obviously, the Italians denied this vehemently, and instead floated the story that the Michigan archaeologist was targeted by a Bedouin man for sleeping with his wife. For a time, the assassination had the makings of a serious international incident. No relevant diplomatic papers have ever been made public and nobody was ever charged with Ducous murder. Number 8. The Spinster Murder The case of Oscar Slater is remembered as one of the most infamous miscarriages of justice. A Jewish immigrant from Germany with a criminal record Slater was convicted of the 1908 murder of wealthy 83-year-old spinster Marion Gilchrist in Glasgow. His original death sentence was commuted to life in prison and Slater served 19 years before being released. The trial and imprisonment attracted the attention of many prominent members of society, most notably Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. In 1912, he even wrote The Case of Oscar Slater, a paper outlining the evidence for the convicted man's innocence and pleading for a full pardon. With all the extra attention and controversy surrounding Slater and his arrest and subsequent acquittal, people tend to forget that Marion Gilchrist's murder is still unsolved. The only solid leads were provided by Detective John Thompson Trench, who worked the case. In 1914, he revealed during a secret inquiry that certain evidence was withheld during the trial, likely at the behest of Marion's influential family members. Trench was fired and discredited and died in 19, never getting to see justice served. Some believe the likeliest murderer was a relative of Marion Gilchrist, such as her nephew. The rest of the family then covered it up to avoid public embarrassment. Number 7 The Sandyford Mystery One of the most heinous crimes in the history of Glasgow occurred in 1862 at 17 Sandyford Place. One of the house's servants, Jessie McPherson, was found half-naked in a pool of her own blood while the owners were away on holiday. Suspicion fell on former servant, Jessie McLaughlin, who was eventually charged with the murder. After only 15 minutes of deliberation, a jury found her guilty and the judge sentenced her to death by hanging. Public protest led to a court commission investigating the evidence presented during the trial. While they could not find McLaughlin innocent, they commuted her sentence to life imprisonment. After serving 15 years, she was released on ticket of leave and emigrated to the United States, where she spent the rest of her life. Although the court quickly convicted Jessie McLaughlin, public opinion remained generally in her favour. A lot of the books and articles written on the case portrayed her as a scapegoat. Others simply couldn't believe that a woman with no criminal past could kill her alleged friend with such brutality. For her part, McLaughlin always pointed the finger at James Fleming, the elderly father of McPherson's employer. A working-class drunk with rude and unpolished manners, McLaughlin claimed Fleming sexually assaulted the servant and then killed her to hide his crime. She then admitted to taking a bribe from the man to stay quiet. Despite public outrage, nobody other than McLaughlin was ever charged with Jesse McPherson's murder. Number six, the Pitchfork Murder. Valentine's Day 1945 in Quinton, Warwickshire, England was the setting for a particularly gruesome murder. 74-year-old Charles Walton was found by his niece Edie and a neighbour after he failed to return home from work. His body was badly bruised and several ribs were broken. His throat was cut with his own slash hook and a pitchfork was driven into the side of his neck pinning him to the ground. The case was investigated by Chief Inspector and future crime author Robert Fabian. According to his book, Fabian of the Yard, he always suspected a man named Alfred Potter to be the culprit. He was the manager of the farm where Walton worked and gave contradicting statements to the police regarding his movements and interactions with the victim. However, Fabian could never find sufficient evidence against Potter or even establish a motive. The main reason why the murder became so infamous, besides the brutality involved in the killing, was its alleged connection to witchcraft. Word of mouth spread that Walton had a cross carved in his chest. This led to rumours that he was killed as a blood sacrifice by a covenant of witches and that he himself was a witch Killed by someone he put a spell on. 5. The day Brisbane lost its innocence. Hmm, that's the city where I live. The violent murder of 22-year-old Betty Shanks rocked Australia in 1952. Betty's brutally beaten body was found in a garden in a suburb of Brisbane on the morning of September 20. Her death sparked the biggest criminal investigation in the history of Queensland. But all efforts proved fruitless. Today, it still remains the oldest unsolved murder in Brisbane. Police only had one solid lead to go on. The description from a taxi driver of a man he saw jump a fence towards the scene of the crime at 10.30pm and then come back three hours later. Investigators interviewed dozens of suspects and even obtained a few confessions. But all of them proved to be false. The case stirred up new controversy in 2014, when two authors published books around the same time, pointing the finger at different people. One of them was Brisbane academic Ted Dewes. The other was former journalist Ken Blanche, who covered the original case back in 1952. Jews claimed the killer was a locksmith named Eric Steary, who attacked Betty Shanks when she rebuffed his advances. These details came courtesy of Steary's own daughter, Delcia, who claimed she went to police several times before going to Jews, but was dismissed each time. Blanche didn't publicly name his suspect. He was a former army driver who allegedly tried to abduct another girl before Betty. The reporter is encouraging police to do a DNA test, but has lost track of the suspect since 2007. Number four, the death of a war hero. The 150-year-old murder of US civil war hero George Colvos Colvo Caressis still puzzles historians and amateur sleuths to this day. The Greek-American first came to prominence as captain of the USS Saratoga during the war. He retired in 1867 and was gunned down on Clinton Street in Bridgeport, Connecticut five years later. Colvo Caressus was travelling to New York and had with him $8,000 cash inside a leather satchel as well as a bamboo sword cane. He was shot once in the left side of the chest close enough for the gunpowder to set his shirt on fire. A pistol, powder horn, percussion caps and bullets were recovered a short distance from the body. The empty satchel was found the next day, a few hundred yards away. The captain's sword cane looked as if it was damaged in a struggle. Since the money was missing, the most obvious answer suggested a robbery. However, some witnesses reported that Colvo Caressus was acting strangely prior to his death, so it has been theorised that someone specifically targeted Colvos. Unfortunately, a solid case could not be built due to police mishandling evidence, which some ascribe to incompetence and others to an intentional cover-up. Several people confessed to the murder over the years, including a Danish soldier who admitted on his deathbed to killing Colvo Caressus during a robbery gone bad. And yet, one of the most pervasive ideas claims that the war hero killed himself. This hypothesis was enthusiastically supported by insurance companies who didn't want to pay out the multiple policies Colvo Caressus took out, totaling almost 200 dollars. 3. The Ruislip Murder Mile On the evening of September 14, 1954, 21-year-old Jean Mary Townsend was returning to her home in the London suburb of Ruislip from a party in West End. She was last seen leaving South Ruislip Station at around midnight and her body was found the next day strangled with her own scarf. There were no signs of sexual assault, even though Jean's shoes and stockings were removed and subsequently found nearby with her handbag. The case started out with a few good leads. A man working at the US Embassy came forward saying he chased away a peeping Tom a few days prior. A woman who lived close to the murder scene claimed she had heard a woman scream that night and shortly after, two men arguing, one with the American accent. Investigators believe the killer could have been an American serviceman, most likely stationed at the nearby South Ruislip Air Station. They also considered the possibility that this wasn't his first murder. Earlier that month, a prostitute named Ellen Carlin was strangled in Pimlico, shortly after being seen with a US Air Force sergeant. However, this murder was subsequently ascribed to Scottish serial killer Peter Manuel. Despite the promising start, detectives never found a viable suspect for Jean Townsend's murder. Sixteen years later, another woman named Gloria Booth was killed in the same way as Jean in the same area, now dubbed the Ruislip Murder Mile. Police considered the idea of it being the work of the same culprit but never found anything to substantiate the claim. Gloria’s sister became convinced that Gloria fell victim to the Yorkshire Ripper. Number 2: The shooting at Porton Cross On October 13, 1913, Mary Spear Gunn was sitting in front of the fire, along with her sister and husband, Jesse and Alexander McLaren, in their cottage outside Porton Cross, Scotland. Suddenly, gunshots started ringing out and bullets came flying through the window. All three were hit, but Alexander and his wife recovered from their injuries. Mary was killed instantly with a shot to the heart. Initially, authorities believed that Alexander McLaren was the intended target. The first shots went through his chair and missed him by inches. He had just retired from farming and had sold his livestock at auction. Anyone aware of his affairs could have assumed that the family kept a tidy sum on hand. Robbery looked like a likely motive, but the shooter made no attempt to enter the cottage. Perhaps he saw he failed to kill Alexander and having run out of bullets, didn't want a direct confrontation. Afterwards, investigator opined that it could have been a spurned lover who wanted Mary dead. She was well known for her good looks and was affectionately nicknamed the Beauty of Beeth. Police made inquiries all the way to Canada, where Mary Gunn previously lived with another sister but they couldn't find any solid leads. All authorities knew was that the killer was most likely a stranger. Several locals claimed that an unknown man approached them that day asking for directions to Portencross. Over a century later, he still remains unidentified. And number one, the death of a nobleman. For almost 700 years, the death of Italian nobleman Congrande della Scala was considered accidental. However, in 2004, a modern autopsy confirmed long-held suspicions that he in fact had been poisoned. Of course, this begged the question, who killed him? Part of the ruling family of Verona, Congrande first served in the military during the Guelph-Ghibellina Wars. He became sole ruler in 1311 and conquered several nearby city-states. In 1329, after multiple campaigns, Congrande finally took control of Treviso. During his state entry, he fell ill, took to bed and died a few days later. Contemporary accounts said that Congrande became ill after drinking from a polluted spring. However, modern historians pointed out that his symptoms could have been indicative of poisoning. When his body was exhumed in 2004, scientists found that it was naturally mummified and several organs could still be examined. They performed a full autopsy, but it was palynology which gave them their biggest clues. Samples were taken from the colon and faeces and an analysis revealed spores of the toxic plant Digitalis papilla, also known as common foxglove. The results were further supported by the toxological analysis of feces, liver and hair samples, which found toxic concentration of digitoxin and digoxin. While Congrande's death was almost certainly murder, the culprit's identity will likely remain a mystery. Historians have one obvious suspect Congrande's nephew, Mestino II, who took over power after his uncle's death. For over 25 years, from 1930 to 1956, the people of Sydney woke up each day to a one-word sermon, Eternity, handwritten in yellow crayon on footpaths, train station platforms and perimeter walls lining the city's many walkways and streets. Each day a fresh batch of graffiti, rendered in beautiful copperplate lettering style, would appear at places where there weren't any the previous night. Somehow for 25 years, a mysterious figure had managed to sneak into the city every night and leave his presence on the city's walls and sidewalks. It attracted the ire of Sydney City Council at first, but as the weeks became months, And the months became years. The Eternity graffiti became an iconic symbol of the city. Pedestrians stepped around and over the words, and street sweepers and cleaners left the elegant writings untouched. From theamusingplanet.com, a story by Korshik. The story behind Sydney's Eternity graffiti. The mysterious figure behind the phenomenon, who was to become the most famous graffiti artist in Australia's history, managed to keep his identity a secret until one morning in June 1956, when he was caught in the act. That morning, Reverend Liesel M. Thompson, who preached at the Burton Street Baptist Church, saw a church cleaner sneak out a piece of chalk from his pocket and write the word on the footpath. Reverend Thompson approached the cleaner and asked, Are you Mr Eternity? To which the cleaner replied, Guilty, Your Honour. Soon after that encounter, the Sunday Telegraph published an interview with the artist and the mystery that had baffled Sydney for over 25 years was finally revealed. The cleaner's name was Arthur Malcolm Stace. Born in 1885 in Redfern, Sydney, Stace's childhood, and much of his adulthood, was marked by abject poverty. His parents were alcoholics, and his sisters ran a brothel. In order to survive, he resorted to stealing bread and milk and searching for scraps of food in bins. At the age of 12, Stace became a ward of the state and worked briefly in a coal mine. As a teenager, he became an alcoholic and was subsequently sent to jail at 15 for drunkenness. His 20s were spent running liquor between pubs and brothels as working as a lookout for gambling dens. During the First World War, Stace found work as a laborer with the Australian Imperial Force, but his recurring bouts of bronchitis and pleurisy led him to be discharged. Stace finally found his calling in November 1932 when he went to listen to a Baptist preacher named John Ridley give sermon. In an homily entitled Echoes of Eternity, Ridley declared, Eternity, Eternity. I wish that I could sound or shout that word to everyone in the streets of Sydney. You've got to meet it. Where will you spend your eternity? The words so captivated Stace that at that very moment, Stace pulled a piece of chalk he had in his pocket, bent down and wrote the word Eternity on the church floor. Even though he was illiterate and could hardly write his own name, Arthur legibly wrote the word Eternity and it came out smoothly in a beautiful copperplate script. "'I couldn't understand it, and I still can't,' he later told in an interview." For the next 35 years of his life until his death in 1967, the reformed alcoholic woke up at the crack of dawn to scrawl eternity in yellow chalk all over the city. Stace narrowly escaped arrest for defacing public property on some two dozen occasions. But each time he was caught, he had a well-rehearsed defence for the police. I had permission from a higher source. Stace estimates he wrote his single-word message an estimated half a million times over three and a half decades. Stace's words wound its way into Sydney's heart. Many contemporary artists incorporated the word into their own artworks. An eternity became a common motif in the Sydney street art scene. At the turn of the century's New Year's Eve celebration, it was proudly emblazoned across the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Later that same year, it was part of the 2000 Sydney Olympic Games opening ceremony. Only two original Eternity inscriptions survive today. One is on a piece of cardboard Stace gave to a fellow parishioner and is now at Eternity Gallery at the National Museum of Australia in Canberra. The other and the only remaining inscription in situ is inside the bell of the Sydney General Post Office clock tower. And if you're interested in the story, visit the show notes at origins.info, click on the link to episode 168 of the Mysteries Abound podcast and then click on the link to this article. There are some photographs of Mr Stace and photographs of some of his work. Definitely worth a look if you like the story. Heaven, I'm in heaven, and my heart beats so that I can hardly speak, and I seem to find the happiness I see. And thank you, Fred Astaire. From the conversation.com website. What is Heaven? And this is written by Joanne M. Pierce. When a family member or a friend passes away, we often find ourselves reflecting on the question, where are they now? As mortal beings, it is a question of ultimate significance to each of us. Different cultural groups and different individuals within them respond with numerous, often conflicting answers to questions about life after death. For many, these questions are rooted in the idea of a reward for the good, a heaven, and punishment for the wicked, a hell, where earthly injustices are finally righted. However, these common roots do not guarantee contemporary agreement on the nature, or even the existence of hell and heaven. Pope Francis himself has raised Catholic eyebrows over some of his comments on heaven, recently telling a young boy that his deceased father, an atheist, was with God in heaven because by his careful parenting he had a good heart. So, what is the Christian idea of heaven? Beliefs about what happens at death. The earliest Christians believed that Jesus Christ, risen from the dead after his crucifixion, would soon return to complete what he had begun by his preaching, the establishment of the kingdom of God. This second coming of Christ would bring an end to the effort of unification of all humanity in Christ and result in a final resurrection of the dead and moral judgment of all human beings. By the middle of the first century AD, Christians became concerned about the fate of members of their churches who had already died before this second coming. Some of the earliest documents in the Christian New Testament Epistles or letters written by the Apostle Paul offered an answer. The dead have simply fallen asleep, they explained. When Christ returns, the dead too would rise in renewed bodies and be judged by Christ himself. Afterwards, they would be united with him for ever. A few theologians in the early centuries of Christianity agreed. But a growing consensus developed that the souls of the dead were held in a kind of waiting state until the end of the world, when they would once again be reunited with their bodies, resurrected in a more perfected form. Promise of Eternal Life After Roman Emperor Constantine legalised Christianity in the early 4th century, the number of Christians grew enormously. Millions converted across the empire, and by the century's end, the old Roman state religion was prohibited. Based on the Gospels, bishops and theologians emphasised that the promise of eternal life in heaven was open only to the baptised. That is, those who had undergone the ritual immersion in water, which cleansed the soul from sin and marked one's entrance into the church. All others were damned to eternal separation from God and punishment for sin. In this new Christian empire, baptism was increasingly administered to infants. Some theologians challenged this practice, since infants could not yet commit sins. But in the Christian West, the belief in original sin, the sin of Adam and Eve when they disobeyed God's command in the Garden of Eden, predominated. Following the teachings of the 4th century Saint Augustine, Western theologians in the 5th century AD believed that even infants were born with the sin of Adam and Eve marring their spirit and will. But this doctrine raised a troubling question. What of those infants who died before baptism could be administered? At first theologians taught that their souls went to hell but suffered very little, if at all. The concept of limbo developed from this idea. Popes and theologians in the 13th century taught that the souls of unbaptized babies or young children enjoyed a state of natural happiness on the edge of hell. But like those punished more severely in hell itself, were denied the bliss of the presence of God. Time of Judgment During times of war or plague in antiquity and the Middle Ages, Western Christians often interpreted the social chaos as a sign of the end of the world. However, as the centuries passed, the second coming of Christ generally became a more remote event for Christians, still awaited but relegated to an indeterminate future. Instead, Christian theology focused more on the moment of individual death. Judgment. The evaluation of the moral state of each human being was no longer postponed until the end of the world. Each soul was first judged individually by Christ immediately after death. The particular judgment. As well as at the second coming, the final or general judgment. Deathbed rituals or last rites developed from earlier rites for the sick and penitent and most had the opportunity to confess their sins to a priest, be anointed, and receive a final communion before breathing their last. Many evil Christians prayed to be protected from a sudden or unexpected death, because they feared baptism alone was not enough to enter heaven directly without these last rites. Another doctrine had developed, Some died still guilty of lesser or venial sins like common gossip, petty theft or minor lies that did not completely deplete one's soul of God's grace. After death these souls would first be purged of any remaining sin or guilt in a spiritual state called purgatory. After this spiritual cleansing, usually visualized as fire, they would be pure enough to enter heaven. Only those who were extraordinarily virtuous, such as the saints or those who had received the last rites, could enter directly into heaven and the presence of God. Images of Heaven In antiquity, the first centuries of the common era, Christian heaven shared certain characteristics with both Judaism and Hellenistic religious thought on the afterlife of the virtuous. One that was of an almost physical rest and refreshment as after a desert journey, often accompanied by descriptions of banquets, fountains or rivers. In the Bible's book of Revelation, a symbolic description of the end of the world, the river running through God's new Jerusalem, was called the river of the water of life. However, in the Gospel of Luke, the damned were tormented by thirst. Another was the image of light. Romans and Jews thought of the abode of the wicked as a place of darkness and shadows, but the divine dwelling place was filled with bright light. Heaven was also charged with positive emotions, peace, joy, love and the bliss of spiritual fulfilment that Christians came to refer to as the beatific vision, the presence of God. Visionaries and poets used a variety of additional images – flowering meadows, colours beyond description, trees filled with fruit, company and conversation with family, or white-robed others among the blessed. Bright angels stood behind the dazzling throne of God and sang praise in exquisite melodies. The Protestant Reformation, begun in 1517, would break sharply with the Roman Catholic Church in Western Europe in the 16th century, while both sides would argue about the existence of purgatory, or whether only some were predestined by God to enter heaven. The existence and general nature of heaven itself was not an issue. Heaven as the place of God. Today theologians offer a variety of opinions about the nature of heaven. The Anglican C.S. Lewis wrote that even one's pets might be admitted, united in love with their owners as the owners are united in Christ through baptism. Following the 19th century, Pope Pius IX Jesuit Karl Rahner taught that even non-Christians and non-believers could still be saved through Christ if they lived according to similar values – an idea now found in the Catholic Catechism. The Catholic Church itself has dropped the idea of limbo, leaving the fate of unbaptized infants to the mercy of God. One theme remains constant, however. Heaven is the presence of God in the company of others who have responded to God's call in their own lives. The bandwidth for today's podcast is provided by TalkShoe at TalkShoe.com. The show notes for the podcast with links to the articles that have been discussed is at the Origins podcast website, origins.info, O-R-I-G-I-N-Z. We have a Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy. And if you like the Mysteries Abound podcast, remember I produce four of these each month. The first one, like this, is a free podcast available to everyone. And the other three are for patrons of the podcast. If you'd like to become a patron, just visit the patreon.com forward slash Paul Rex website. And by becoming a patron, you will get access to the other episodes each month. It costs as little as $1 per episode. You can make it more if you wish, but most people just do the $1. By becoming a patron, you give me a small income from the podcast and this allows me time to leave my other work at the Botanic Gardens and do more podcasting. So if you'd like to get access to these podcasts, become a patron. It gives me the time to do the podcasts. Without your support, it wouldn't happen. So if you're not sure where to join up and become a patron, easiest way just visit the show notes origins.info, And click on the link there, right on the front page of the website. Anyway, on with the podcast. In the previous story, we were pondering as to what is heaven? In this story... Some people may believe they've already found it. From the Atlasobscura.com website, a story by Abby Perot: Why British Royal Navy sailors preferred their booze on fire. The alcoholic proof system dates back to this centuries-old practice. Nowadays, a flaming alcoholic beverage is either the handiwork of a skilled bartender or a terrible mistake. Just two centuries ago, however, this ritual was commonplace among members of the British Royal Navy. Setting fire to rum helped sailors regulate their spirits and perhaps find a small sense of control amidst a chaotic life at sea. During the 18th and 19th century, Life aboard a Royal Navy ship entailed brutal battles, unavoidable disease, and to deal with it all, an inordinate amount of alcohol. To keep the seamen fed, hydrated and in high spirits, the victualling board ensured that the fleet was supplied with an appropriate amount of salted meat, cheese, biscuits and booze. Initially beer was the Navy's drink of choice. Water spoiled at sea, so sailors were allotted a whopping gallon of the brewed beverage each day. The Victuelling Board owned its own breweries and experimented with a few different brews, including stronger ales that could be diluted at sea, and spruce beer, believed to help ward off scurvy. But even beer didn't hold up so well in the heat. After sitting in the damp, hot bowels of the ship, the wooden kegs would grow mould, turning the beer rancid. The Navy needed a more resilient spirit, one that could withstand time and temperature and perhaps boost the bravery of the sailors too. Rum wasn't the immediate first choice. The Royal Navy experimented with brandy and arak, a particularly strong distilled drink from the Middle East introduced by the East India Company. But as the triangular trade and slave labour in the Caribbean made rum more accessible and an important British business interest, it became the beverage of choice amongst the fleet. Sailors received a tot of rum, equivalent to nearly half a pint each day. It could be drained on the spot, taken with lemon or lime juice to prevent scurvy, or used to settle debts between sailors. Rum was even prescribed to treat various ailments, such as scorpion and spider bites. Though revered for its supposed medicinal properties, it frequently led to intoxicated injuries, alcohol poisoning and death. William Warner, a naval surgeon, observed in his medical notes, "'Drunkenness nowadays in the Navy "'kills more men than the sword.'" Despite the dangers, sailors were more concerned about not being drunk enough. Wary that the ship's purser might be serving watered-down rum, the seamen needed a quick, simple system to test the legitimacy of their spirits. So, quite literally, they brought the fire. Harking back to a 16th century system used by British tax collectors when calculating liquor tariffs based on alcohol content, the sailors implemented a resourceful and rather dramatic proof system. First, a few grains of gunpowder were mixed in with a small sample of allotted rum and then set to flame. If the liquid caught fire, the flame was proof that it wasn't a diluted tot. If there was no reaction, the purser would face the fiery wrath of a shorted crew. By 1740, an admiral by the name of Sir Edmund Vernon saw the constant drunkenness of his fleet as a bit of a problem. In an attempt to sober up the unruly troops, he established a new rule buffering the sailors' buzz. From then on, the purser of each ship was required to dilute the rum with water, giving birth to a booze dubbed Grog, which was doled out in two daily servings. The moniker is likely taken from Old Grog, a nickname attributed to Vernon for the infamous gum-stiffened grogram coat he sported. Though diluted, the new drink didn't exactly usher the British Navy towards immediate sobriety. The total amount of rum between the two servings of grog supposedly still neared eight ounces. Over time, however, things began to shift the invention of the hydrometer in 1816 dispelled the need for such an explosive proof method. Eventually, the temperance movement of the 19th century began curbing the sailors' rum intake. By the 1950s, the rise of technology and advanced weaponry forced the Royal Navy to prioritise mental precision over drunken valour. On July 31, 1970... Black Tot Day marked the official eradication of rum from the British Navy, much to the chagrin of the sozzled seafarers. Despite the gradual disappearance of torched tots and unadulterated intoxication aboard Great Britain's naval ships, much of the language from the old maritime proof system still exists today. In England, spirits comprised of more than 57% alcohol the lowest concentration that would catch fire, are considered to be naval strength or overproof. The United States too uses proof terminology, though it varies slightly from the British vocabulary. A drink that contains 50% alcohol is considered 100 proof. Even the word groggy harks back to the disoriented feeling one might get from guzzling too much grog which any 18th century sailor might tell you is an unsettling state to be in when dealing with explosive drinks. Well everyone, that concludes episode 168 of the Mysteries Abound podcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. And remember, if you would like to get access to more of these shows, visit the patreon.com website And sign up to become a patron. Your help would be greatly appreciated. So until next time everyone, this is Paul saying bye for now. Keep well, keep safe and thank you for your support. Bye for now.